There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Well, with the first COVID-19 vaccinations among medically vulnerable people set to take place this week, Fine Gael TD Jennifer Carroll McNeil and People Before Profit TD Breach Smith will be here to discuss, as well as cystic fibrosis campaigner Gillian McNulty and her concerns about the pace of the vaccine rollout. Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King will bring us the very latest from that NEFIT briefing this evening. And to mark International Women's Day, Vice President of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, Dr. Gabriel Colloran, and CEO of Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolene Blackwell, will be here. And later, well, our right royal mess, Goss.ie founder Alexandra Ryan and journalist Sinead Ryan will be here to discuss Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's explosive TV interview with Oprah Winfrey. Do get in touch on Twitter or hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King joins us from the Department of Health. Good evening to you, Zara. Nefit, I think it's fair to say, sounding a more positive note this evening at that briefing, talking about accelerated progress. What exactly did they have to say? Yes, good evening, Kira. It's possibly one of the more positive NEFA briefings we've been at in a long time tonight, with them speaking about that uh, substantial progress that we have made. Uh, they're saying that uh, cases have consistently fallen in recent weeks, which is nice for people to hear, uh, pointing to the fact that people's compliance and the efforts they've made, particularly in the last two weeks, actually, has made a really significant difference in terms of bringing those case numbers down. Uh, accelerated progress, as you mentioned there, the OR number now stabilising between 0.7 and 0.8, uh, with ICU numbers falling quite rapidly as well and very positive signs of progress there. Uh, looking at those latest figures, uh, pleased to report that we have no further deaths being reported this evening, Kira. Uh, 437 new cases, so less than 500. Uh, while the hospital situation, 418 COVID patients in hospital tonight, of which 101 are in the intensive care unit. But I'd say things are definitely going in the right direction. Uh, as I say, pointing to that extra compliance, Ronan Glynn saying that the hope is justified in the context of the continued improvement in the key indicators of the disease and with the ongoing rollout of the vaccine vaccine programme over the coming weeks. But he also says that it's really important, Kira, that we don't sort of uh, lose fight of our, sight of our focus either, that really, you know, the progress is dependent on people continuing to adhere to the guidelines. Uh, also some positive news tonight, Kira, as well, to hear that NEFIT will be discussing on Thursday at their weekly meeting the resumption possibly of nursing home visits. So there'll be people watching tonight who'll be delighted to hear that. And on a not so positive uh, note, Zara, they also spoke about the link between COVID, pregnancy and those awful stillbirth cases that we heard about last week. 
Yes, Kira, this is an incredibly uh, difficult situation, particularly for the four families at the centre of these cases of stillbirths. Uh, this first came to light last Thursday here at the NEF of briefing when it was mentioned that these cases were under investigation with a potential link to COVID placentitis. So COVID placentitis is when the placenta becomes infected with COVID-19, it becomes inflamed and then it becomes difficult for things like nutrients and oxygen to pass through to the unborn baby. But to reassure people, this is very rare, Kira. And to be honest, we heard tonight that the fact that there were 50,000 pregnancies in Ireland last year, of which uh, just 450 women became COVID positive, and a very small number of those ended up uh, having COVID placentitis. So it is very rare. But tonight, uh, we did hear from Dr. Cleana Murphy, who is the chair of the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, about those four individual cases. She said it is the view of the pathologist conducting the investigation that COVID-19 was the significant factor that resulted in the stillbirth uh, of these babies. And she went on to express her condolences to their families. Yeah, our thoughts are certainly with um, those women and their families. What more have we learned, Zara, this evening about the hotel quarantine system, the mandatory hotel quarantine system? We know legislation was signed on Sunday. When is it going to be operational, do we think? So Kira, it's possible that this could be up and running as early as next week. We heard today about the fact that there is a single provider conversation happening with one single provider who will be sort of a one-stop shop for everything, including accommodation, catering, transport and testing. So this will be brought to Cabinet tomorrow to be signed off. And if everything goes according to plan, we could see this potentially implemented by as early as next week. You know, of course, the President signed that into law over the weekend. So substantial and quick progress being made on that at the moment. Uh, giving you an update, I suppose arrivals will come into the country it's in relation to the 33 countries that are on the red list. So, for example, uh, places like the United Arab Emirates, South Africa, uh, Austria and Brazil on that list or anyone who comes into the country without having that crucial negative PCR test when they arrive. So they will come into the country and they'll pay around €2,000 for that 14-day quarantine. And then at the end of that, they will be given a letter of completion so that they'll be able to leave at the end of that 14-day quarantine. But we understand that it's going to be between five and six different premises, potentially hotels, uh, around the Dublin area that will be involved in this. As the Cabinet due to sign off on it tomorrow, we could see this happening as early as next week. And very briefly, if you don't mind, Zara, give us the very latest on the uh, vaccine rollout. Yes, so Kira, I suppose the good news is for the people in that cohort four group that is getting underway now, that's people aged from 16 to 69 who are considered very high risk of disease or death related to COVID-19. So work is ongoing to identify those individuals. Um, a lot of these people will have received treatment through hospital. So it is the hospitals that are now working uh, to identify those individuals. Uh, for example, it will be people who are on, for example, things like dialysis or transplant recipients. So that work happening throughout the week. So those people will be expecting their calls very soon. As always, uh, Zara King, thank you for that update. Well, joining me here in studio is Fine Gael TD, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, and also People Before Profit TD, Breach Smith. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Jennifer, I want to start um, before we get into some of those um, updates from NEFA this evening to what's happening with uh, Davy Stockbrokers, in particular the news this evening that uh, the NTMA have decided that they're no longer going to be one of the primary dealers for government bonds. Is this something the government wanted to see happen? And is the government... Satisfied that this is enough now in terms of a sanction against Davy or what else do we want to see? I think it's the appropriate reaction from the NTMA. It follows Pascal Donoghue's extremely strong reaction after the central bank investigated this and um, implemented an unprecedented penalty against Davies. 
it, you know, the response from dailies this week has been insufficient and even a bit mealy-mouthed. It took a long time to respond at all. And then you see retirements and resignations and even bringing forward my retirement. It's just not what needs to happen now. There's 700 other people working in Davies who had nothing to do with this um, and the reputational damage to them and to their organisation and, you know, the risks to their employment are so substantial that, you know, the damage that has been done by the activities of these individuals that have been identified by the central bank is, is, is massive to the organisation, to the other employees and to the reputation of the financial services industry in Ireland. Are you concerned that this deal um, that has given rise to this uh, sanction by the central bank happened in 2014? I know there was a legal action and a settlement in 2015, but it's now 2021, almost six years later, before we see any real repercussions for those involved. I, I am concerned that the reports were that there wasn't cooperation with the central bank investigation, that the initial deal had been hidden from their own compliance. You know, there wasn't an effort to, this wasn't, you know, it doesn't appear to have been a mistake that they tried to sort. This was something that was hidden from compliance and that the central bank were frustrated again and again in their efforts to investigate it. So, you know, fair play to the central bank for pursuing it um, against, 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 that sort of, against that sort of difficulty and for issuing an unprecedented fine. Uh, Bree Smith, are you satisfied that Pascal Donoghue and the government, you know, gave that, as Jennifer said, extremely strong reaction to the central bank reports against David? Well, I think the whole business illustrates the sort of endemic relationship between elements of the state and the whole financial banking sector that people in this country are way too familiar with. And it's not like they're just a, a once-off bunch of greedy individuals who try to, you know, get away with something. This was endemic in the system, going right back to Anglo-Irish, then onto the Maple 10, and now we've ended up, we're lumped with a 64 billion euro bailout that is costing us something like 800 million per year, so what year on year, just to service. Um, well, I mean, when Jennifer said there, the lack of compliance with the central bank and the... the um, the, um, the, the lack of willingness to cooperate. I mean, if I refused to cooperate with what looked like a massive crime, I'm sure I'd be arrested and brought in for questioning. I don't understand why the banks continually operate on the basis of voluntary compliance with the central bank. We will give you information without any kind of uh, criminal investigation or powers being given to the Gardaí to go in and say, you have to talk about this. You have to comply with uh, what you're being asked here because these are not um, victimless crimes. We've ended up with a housing emergency. We've ended up with a health emergency that we could be doing with that 800 million a year and that 64 there, billion that we, we were dumped with. There are powers of compelability under the regulatory system by the central bank. So, so they are there. They attempted to frustrate them, but they are there. There's also a suite of white collar crime legislation, but I think it's very important to, to acknowledge that these processes have gone through so far. It, it isn't appropriate for me as a TD to comment on whether or not there should be a criminal element. That's for the Guardian and the DPP. And there are also further personal sanctions available under the central bank. So, you know, we have to be careful about not about getting a, not speaking in a way that could prejudice any of those things. Well, I'm don't a TD and I think it's appropriate well, to don't. say that I worry about the, the well, fact that there might too, be but I don't criminal, uh, criminal elements. I don't want to interfere in any I'm not in interfering, any, in but I'm, I'm, I'm free to comment. But I, I take a different approach and I'm just acknowledging that those powers are there under the central bank and under the white collar crime legislation. Would you accept that people maybe watching this evening will worry that the culture that we saw within so many of these financial institutions, you know, that led to the crash and the recession that so many of us are still paying for, that it hasn't changed significantly? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is an egregious breach of financial services standards. Absolutely. And the people that it impacts are the other people working in the industry who have no truck with any of this. The other people working in the organisation whose jobs are threatened. I mean, the, the NTMA withdrew. And I mean, it's a, it's, it's a huge blow to Davies as an organisation, the, the, the brokerage power. They've now closed down the brokerage desk, as far as I can see. I don't know if other job losses may follow, but it's at the hands of the senior management and what they did. I believe there were four job losses off the back of that this evening. Um, we just want to move to one of the other uh, stories in the headlines today. And as you heard there when I was speaking to Zara, the first COVID-19 vaccinations among medically vulnerable people aged between 16 and 69 who are very high risk is set to begin this week. I think 10,000 are set to be vaccinated. However, cystic fibrosis campaigner Gillian McNulty, who joins us now via Skype, is still in limbo, it appears. Uh, Gillian, you are waiting to hear when you're going to be vaccinated. Do you believe that you are now in this priority group? But no further detail, am I right? No, um, no, I was told today um, the nephrology team in St Vincent's are primed and ready to go. They're just waiting um, to hear back from the HSC on delivery of vaccines. So whenever that's going to happen, they don't have a delivery date. And just to be clear, you are um, a transplant waiting list patient. You're on dialysis, you're asthmatic, you're cystic fibro you have cystic fibrosis. To say that you are waiting for this vaccine would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Yeah, like it really can't come quick enough. There's so many people like me that really, really need it. And we've been cocooning as best we can for the past year. Um, and it's just at this stage, the delays, delays, delays. I mean, I think until everybody is vaccinated, we're not going to be safely out of this. I think they really need to roll it out a lot quicker for everybody, not just for my cohort, but for everybody coming after me because it's there's just so much delays. It's so frustrating. Nobody knows anything that's going on. Um, and it's just... People are getting more and more frustrated day by day. So have you any idea of a timeline at, at this point? Have you any? No, none at none? all. No, no. Do you think yourself from, you know, perhaps your GP or your consultant, any you've spoken <clears throat> to, it could be three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, they seven really weeks? They don't have a clue. They've just everything ready to go, but they're just waiting on the HSE to deliver the vaccines, but they don't know when that will be. Like everybody was told, it start, cohort four starts from today, but... I mean, that could go on for weeks and weeks. We, we really don't know. And at one stage, Gillian, I know you were in sort of priority group seven. So you have been moved up the priority list. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure you welcome that. But I can still hear the frustration in your voice. Well, like it, it's not an answer for everybody. You know, um, there's so many other people with CF that are going to be still down the bottom of the list because they're not severe. Um, and I think that's very unfair. Um, and obviously I know because my cohort are moved up, someone else has moved down and that's not very nice. You know, everybody needs its vaccine as quickly as possible. Um, so yeah, it's, it's frustrating. The whole rollout is frustrating. What would your message be, you know, to the Minister for Health, to the HSE, to those overseeing the rollout of this vaccine? They need to get things moving a lot quicker than they're moving. I know like they're, we're, we're making headway, but I mean, I know uh, there's an 86 year old man at dialysis um, who's still waiting on his vaccine and he's been told by his GP he won't get the vaccine until April. It, you know, so there's so many mixed messages going and pe people aren't, aren't able to that. People are tiring of COVID now at this stage and when we all know that there's light at the end of the tunnel we need that light now we need the vaccines now everybody needs us so that we can try and get back to a little bit of normalization whatever that's going to be after all this 
And just to be clear, Gillian, you know, we talk about sort of restricting our movements and, you know, being very, very careful about, you know, implementing all of those hygiene standards, you know, to ensure that we don't contract COVID. But for you, you have to take this really to the extreme. Are you quite housebound? Um, well, obviously, I have to go to dialysis three times a week uh, to St. Vincent's from Longford. So I'm, I'm out like I'm extremely careful, um, you know, like I don't like I haven't mixed, I haven't met friends. I've only met one friend kind of in the last year. Um, the, the thing of going out and meeting your friend for a cup of coffee or going shopping, that's gone. Like I can't do that anymore. Nobody can do that anymore because everywhere's closed. But um, e even after I get the vaccine, I'm still going to be really restricted as are people, other people with cystic fibrosis or transplant patients. Um, we're still going to be very restricted for a very long time. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, but Gillian, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to thank us this so evening. Much. We wish you the very best uh, of luck. Um, the Dietrich did say, didn't he, I think it was on February 23rd, which is over two weeks ago now, that people like Gillian were going to be moved up. He was delighted to announce that they would now be in sort of priority group four and they would get the vaccine. 160,000 in that list, I, am, I think it is, isn't it? 10,000 this week. Somebody like Gillian hasn't a clue if it's going to be three, four, five, six, seven weeks. Yeah. Is that good enough? No, it's not. But what Gillian said where, there is that she's been identified by Vincent's and that they're waiting for the vaccines to arrive. That has been the case all the way along. It is a supply issue. The HSE is constrained by supply. Where the vaccines have arrived into Ireland, and don't forget, we're vaccine takers. We're not vaccine makers. We're dependent on them coming in. 95% have been administered, with a small stock being held back, obviously, for the security of the second dose. That's the most important figure. What's coming in must be administered. We are stuck when we're, you know, subjected to random, you know, and difficult uh, delivery schedules and missed commitments. But when the vaccines come and in, some they will be delivered. Difficulties which we saw last week around GPs getting the vaccine. In fairness, and serious questions being asked by your own uh, colleague Owen Murphy about our our own procurement of the vaccine and our, it appears, inability to go outside the strict EU structure in terms of getting that vaccine. Yeah, that's right. We are within the EU structure. And well, you we've know, chosen to be within we, the EU Well, EU yes, but also, yes, but also, yes, but also, what did that give us? You know, I, I mean, I'm an advocate for the EU structure in the sense that it gives us a bigger bargaining power than we would have for a country of our size, for people of our size. We wouldn't have had the same, I believe, negotiating powers, the same financial wherewithal, and even the same urgency or the rapidity of getting them. So I think there is an argument for a country the size of Ireland to be within the European system. I and and and, and it, you yes, don't think we should go outside that at all. Then, I think if not? we can, I think if we can get. To, to a limited, if we can get vaccines from other places in addition to what we're getting from the EMA. But I don't believe there was ever an alternative to going through from, through the EMA system, if that's what you're suggesting. You don't think there's an alternative? Do you think there's an alternative? No, I think well, there's, there's something... Vaccines, sorry, there's I think vaccine. you can do it in addition to it. But if you're saying as an alternative through the EMA model, I wouldn't have thought so, no. But in addition to it? Yeah, there's vaccines available from Cuba, I believe, from Russia, from China. Look, I think there's a real tragic uh, situation that's really illustrated by this woman's story here tonight that various cohorts are competing for a shortage of supply. Mm. On Thursday and Friday, the World Trade Organization will be meeting. And one of the demands that's coming at them from countries like South Africa and India is to lift the intellectual property rights for the sake of the pandemic and allow mass production of the vaccine. After all, billions of public money went in to uh, find, doing the research to find vaccines, four or five that are available. Lift the intellectual property rights, allow all pharmaceutical industries produce at scale in countries that can do it, and therefore everybody gets safe and everybody remains safe. If we've half the planet without vaccinations and there are hundreds of countries that haven't had one 
uh, needle so far. If we do that, we're going to mess up and variants will fly and we'll be back to square one. We need to lift those intellectual property rights. And the job of Ireland is to push the EU to say, you need to do this. And the, the Irish government haven't well, said a, so. The European the, Union no. are opposing it. And okay. what the we'll Irish government need to do is to allow all countries a free vote on it. Simon Coveney, as member of the Security Council on behalf of Ireland, has been leading this with them and trying to drive exactly that. There's a support for, of the international community for making sure that there's an equitable vaccine distribution That's globally. That's different to so lift the okay, it is different, right. but it's the, important I to say. the situation here at home, uh, given what Gillian said yesterday, does it concern you when you see a story like we did in the front of the mail on Sunday yesterday about clerical, non-patient facing members of the HSC getting vaccinated? It, 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 of course it does. And, you know, we had similar concerns when we heard about it in different hospitals and so on. Of course it does. But, uh, you know, but but, but I, I can't I can't say any further than that. Of, of course it does. Yes. You know, what we want is for people who who require the vaccine to get it as a matter of urgency. Given the fact there is such huge shortages, given the fact that you have somebody like Gillian, you know, sitting on dialysis, unable to leave her home. Why then... Are there still those mistakes being made within I, the HSC? I, I can't. I can't possibly answer that. I'm sorry. There's, there's, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not responsible for that. I don't think that that should be happening. Um, and I, I hope to hear an answer about that in the Dáil this week. Well, the scarcity of supply is bound to lead to these kind of conflicts at a minor and at a major level. We already almost saw a conflict over the protocol and, uh, uh, you know, to do with the, with Brexit and all that. We need to ensure that the supply is as large as it can. It's a pandemic. By its nature, it affects everybody on the planet. Uh, given the target of 250,000 a week by the beginning of April and the fact that we're only on 80,000 a week this week and last week, are you concerned, Bridge, that we are just not going to be able to reach that target. Well, the supply is an issue, but I also think that the rollout is an issue. And we have seen evidence of the making of bags of it in my own constituency in Ballyfermot. 90 over 85s were at the last minute told no appointment, you're gone. Uh, they've got it since, thankfully, but this has gone on in, frequently around the country. And there's also the question of the exclusion of our public health doctors. They were not giving a lead role in this and they should have been given it. Okay. They're mainly women. They almost went on strike over the way they're being treated by the government, but they haven't been given their head, given their power and given a lead role. Public health doctors are trained to look after public health issues. All right, we're going to leave it there. And just to be clear, there was no criminal investigation to anybody at, at Davy in case there was any yeah. suggestion that there was. Um, we're going to leave it there. Thank you uh, to Breed Smith, Jennifer Carl McNeil. You're going to be staying with us. And after the break, the Vice President of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, Dr Gabrielle Colloran, and Dublin Rape Crisis Centre CEO, Nolene Blackwell, will be here to discuss issues that women have faced during this pandemic. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. 
welcome back. Well, today marks International Women's Day 2021 with the theme being Choose to Challenge. And I was going to say the two guests who've chosen to be challenged this evening are Finnegill's Jennifer Carl McNeil, who is still with us, and we're also joined by Dr. Gabriel Colloran and CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Nolene Blackwell is also there via Skype. Uh, good evening to you all. I just want to ask you very briefly, um, Jennifer, because we didn't get a chance in the last sure. part, the hotel quarantine, mandatory hotel quarantine, what's outstanding at this point to be sorted? There was a procurement process to make sure that they had all the catering, um, transport, uh, hotels that needed to be go through. I believe that's going to Cabinet tomorrow so all going well then that should be operationalized by the end of the week into early next week. So we so could see those hotels up and running and mandatory quarantine for anybody coming in from those countries by potentially Monday of next week? That is my understanding, based oh. on things going well in Cabinet tomorrow. All right, well, as I just said there, it is uh, International Women's Day. You look like you're crossing your fingers there <laughs> and hoping for the best. Uh, Justice Helen McEntee, obviously, has been no or dead. Justice Minister Helen McEntee um, is pregnant and we understand it wants to go off maternity leave, as she's entitled to do uh, in May of this year, but still no clear path for her as a pregnant minister and what she can do with her role and pregnancy. Yeah. And the reason, yes, exactly. And the reason for that is because the constitution says you can have 15 ministers. So what's she going to do? And it is difficult. Um, but they're working on a range of options that, that mean that she doesn't have to resign. It's up to her how she wants to organise her time having had a baby and how she wants to look after the baby. It's completely up to her. It's important not to be prescriptive and just to make sure that, you know, she's given every facilitation and every support to do the things that are right for her and her baby all yeah. going well. I don't believe she wants to resign from her role as Justice Minister. I can completely understand that. I can completely understand that. So what are the potential alternatives and the impediments at this point? Because there are questions being uh, raised over whether or not it is the constitution that is the issue here. Well, my understanding is it's the constitution. The reason for that is because it very clearly says that you can only have 15 ministers. So how do you manage it? So there's lots of, there's different things that you can do. You could create, for example, a minister without a portfolio. You can redistribute portfolios. Um, they, you know, th those are the sorts of options. You can bring somebody in. You can, there's, a, there's, there's different options. But, you know, I'm aware that they're trying to work that out at the moment. So I, you know, I, I, and I'm not involved in that. So, you know, we'll have to see where we get to. But it does go to show in the long run, these sorts of arrangements aren't suitable, that we need to address this and other issues around women in politics and maternity and leave in politics in a much longer term, more appropriate way. And I believe Isn't that will take constitutional though, change. Um, Jennifer, that in it's, 2021, that, OK, it's now come to a head because we have a minister who is yeah. female and pregnant, but it's not like we haven't had pregnant women in politics for the last number of decades. You know, it is surprising and it isn't. I mean, I have... Well, um, isn't it a failing of those Oh, it's a failing, absolutely. Politics? But but having been in, you know, having, I do believe it requires a referendum ultimately. I mean, I even have legislation which requires a referendum on remote voting, which would be highly relevant for parents of young children, you know, after a specified period in limited circumstances. It's also relevant in a pandemic or for somebody who's going through chemotherapy and is immunosuppressed. But these sorts of things, you know, when you put them out in theory, don't often perhaps catch the imagination, the theoretical example. I think Helen McEntee's case has shown us the, the, you know, the hard case that you know, if legislative change, if constitutional change is needed, we can point to and understand precisely the effect of an outdated constitution. Uh, Gabrielle. So I think it's incredible that in 2021, we're talking about having to legislate for a minister being able to take maternity leave. And, and when we have so few women in politics, like we are behind Afghanistan and China, and we have to ask ourselves why. And this 
you know, procedure where it's clearly designed for men who have partners at home looking after children and hasn't moved with the times to a society where we're talking about children not just being, and childcare, not just being a mother's issue, but being a parent's issue. And I'd love to see six months paid leave for everyone. And I mean parents, I mean fathers, because maternity leave puts a question mark over every woman across every profession in this country and around the world. And there is implicit bias against women because of the potential for women of childbearing age to take maternity leave. I've experienced this myself, so many women have. And that question mark should be above every man as well. And until we have paid equal parental leave for both sexes, women will still struggle for equality in the workplace. It's a huge cultural issue. I mean, even if you look as children get older and you have the phenomenon of the woman going back and looking for a three-day week, whereas the man stays at a five-day week, until it's culturally acceptable that both partners go back and look for a four-day week, you know, whether that's in a commercial law firm or wherever else, that that's a normal thing to do because people have babies, not just women having babies. I think we're, it's going, we're, people are going to struggle for years and years. But the arrangement that they're going to be put in place for... Uh, Minister Helen McEntee appears to be sort of an ad hoc arrangement. Has there been a clear commitment given by your government that if a referendum is needed, that it is going to be organised at the sort of first available opportunity? Well, because as you say, it is 2021. Yeah. This isn't a new phenomenon to many of your Fine Gael colleagues. Well, when I introduced that bill, for example, the, the Taoiseach was there. And I mean, he has committed, he has said that if a referendum is necessary to deliver these sorts of changes, then that's what will happen. Even the remote voting. I mean, I think it's about 5% of the solution, but it's a really necessary 5%. But there's a whole suite of changes that need to happen. So is this Maternity, a priority then for the government? Because well, I don't, I wouldn't even, I, even I, the proponent of the bill, wouldn't advocate a referendum at this time. But I think that you can move it forward. The Oireachtas Women's Caucus gave it their support. And I'd love to see them moving it forward and having the debate because, of course, you don't have to trigger the referendum until the right time. I just want to ask you about your own, I suppose, situation and your own experience within the healthcare profession. We know and we've seen through this pandemic right across Europe, it is a largely female-based profession. I think over 70 percent of those who work in healthcare so are female. I think it's 76 percent across 76%. Europe and it's 79 percent in yeah. Ireland specifically. How many of those are in leadership roles, Gabrielle? So um, in Ireland specifically, you know, the people that come to mind would be you know, Professor Mary Horgan in RCPI. She's the first woman um, to be president of RCPI. Um, you know, Catherine Motherway as a lead for anaesthesia in the in the College of Anaesthetics. I mean, for me in lockdown one, when she came and addressed the country, that was a really pivotal moment. Funny where... how you can name these people by name though, can't you? Which makes me oh, think yes. that, you know, the percentage of the 79% of females in healthcare who are in leadership roles must be quite small. Well, to be fair, in Ireland, it's actually improved a lot in recent years. Like 30%, 36% of consultants are women. Um, but we do have a serious issue with the gender pay gap among consultants in that we far more women in the post-2012 group who were on a 30% less pay differential than the pre-2012. Um, but, you know, really in Ireland, for, for female consultants, the biggest issue is not having enough colleagues, having too much of a workload, too tight a call roster because of our low numbers of consultant staffing broadly. So I think in medicine, you know, we have seen the benefit of the innovation and the diversity that comes with inclusive teams and from great female leaders like Mary Horgan, like Catherine Motherway. I just want to go to uh, Skype because I know Nolene Blackwell, the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis uh, Centre, is standing by. Nolene, the past year has been... I would say incredibly difficult for a lot of the people that would be ringing your helpline, those who find themselves in situations at home that are not safe. What have their experiences been? Yeah, 
So for certain sure, they had their challenge du during the year. They didn't need today uh, to get to choose to challenge. It has been very, very hard for people. Um, and of course, part of the uh, whole issue about restrictions was that people were um, forced into closer domestic contact. And one of the things that we had to realise as a society was that home is not a safe place for a whole lot of people. Um, and even before the pandemic, we found on a regular basis, 20% of the clients who would come into us in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre would be victims of sexual violence as the result of a partner or an ex-partner. So, so home can be a dangerous place. And, and so it proved during the last year as well, Kira. One of the things that, that was done well was from the start of the pandemic, government, um, Department of Justice that you were talking about there before, health services, uh, the Department of Children, Youth Affairs, TUSLA, prioritised uh, those who were working in the areas of uh, domestic violence and sexual violence services, recognising that we needed to keep going. So we did keep going. But even at that, people found it very hard to access services sometimes. So for instance, a lot of the people who would want to contact us would want to contact our, they'd want their counselling services, they'd want to be able to contact the helpline. Even where people weren't at risk at home, they found it extremely difficult to get the mental space and the physical space uh, to make a call to discuss something very private. You know, literally there was on space. We had people who were taking calls in cars. We were people who were saying they couldn't even talk out in a park because the parks were so full. So people who were already suffering from the serious harm done by sexual violence found that, that they were constrained in how they could access uh, help. And one of the things we found was that at the time of the greatest lockdown, there wasn't a bulge in services. But come the the, the, when restrictions were lessened over the summer, uh, we saw a huge increase in the number of people coming to contact us, looking for help, and people who, who were recently hurt, uh, um, people who had, had felt, uh, you know, felt they couldn't say that they'd been out during restrictions time or something, yeah. although, although it, in fairness to the guards and to everybody concerned, everyone said, don't hesitate to ask for help if yeah. you've been a, a victim of sexual or domestic oh, violence. Right. But the other thing that happened is I think people who didn't have the distractions of work, who were seeing the same people in the community who might have hurt them before, old things came up for them. Oh, so right. the pandemic has done damage to the mental and emotional health of people and it will take some time to recover. Um, I just want to put some of those points um, to you, Gabrielle, because I'm wondering, do you think that the COVID strategy in this country would have been different if we had seen more female representation, perhaps in government or perhaps on something like NEFIT? That we would have been taken into consideration the impact that it was having on people like uh, Nolene was talking about there? So representation really matters. So with the best will in the world, if you have, you know, predominantly men or all men in a room making a decision, decisions that disproportionately affect women and children 
won't be as good as the decisions that would be made if women were actually shaping those decisions. And do you think that actually happened? Oh, I do. Like, if, if you look at what happened for healthcare workers in January when the schools shut and there was no plan from government for backup childcare for those of us who had children who now weren't in school. And, you know, up north, our colleagues, their children were going to, to school to be looked after so that healthcare workers could go to work. I don't think that would have happened if we had more women at the decision-making table. Neffet is actually quite a lot. You know, the gender balance is pretty good in Neffet, but Neffet advised government decide. Ultimately, we need to elect more women and we need to have more women ministers at the table making the decisions because those decisions matter. And this is International Women's Day, so we're focusing on women. And it's great that myself and Deputy Carolyn O'Neill are here with you, but we are both very privileged well-educated, affluent, middle-class women. We need also our society as we build forward to be more inclusive and representative of everyone. So we need those diverse female voices. We need more travellers at the table. Travellers have really suffered during this pandemic. We need more black people. We need more people with disabilities. If we want to build forward better and be the kind society we believe we are, we have to change. And the representation in the media really matters. You know, Noelle O'Reilly was on a webinar that Derville MacDonald did for RCSI last week talking about women on the air. And so even though we're 51% of the population, only 25% in media panels, and that matters it shapes everything going forward. So we need to set targets. Radio stations, everything, you know, TV that's funded by the government. We need to have targets that are tracked and monitored for female representation. And that's how we implement structural change. Yeah, I just want to pick up just one particular point that you made there because um, I was reading the Irish Independent today about those childcare facilities and the fact that over half of the childcare facilities are still not open and that that is disproportionately affecting yeah. women. I saw an incredible stat today. The CSO said women were 9%, 9% of women had to take unpaid leave to look after children during the pandemic, 0.4% of men took unpaid leave. So there, it fell to women. There has been. I mean, I made my Women's Day speech in the Dáil on Thursday and I addressed precisely this point, the disproportionate burden that the COVID-19 pandemic has placed on women and women carers. Mm -hmm. Even when there's been two working parents in the house, we have seen not just in Ireland, but the evidence across Europe that the care burden and, and the what, housework burden what has... What does the government do for those women? Sorry, Jennifer. Well, sorry, that's 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 within a, pri a private matter and it's a big cultural change as, as well. Now, just on the specific issues of childcare reopening, mm -hmm. you see the Eche kids going back today. But you know, it's not all three-year-olds. It's only if you're of the Eche age. And I raised that with the minister as soon as I realised that was happening last week. Because, you know, women and men have been at home with children. It is incredibly difficult no to, to that, work. Well, I'm going to raise it with again. I'm going to, because every day matters when you're at home with a three-year-old trying to do your work as well as you know, as many of us know. <laughs> we absolutely do. Yeah. I'm going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Jennifer Carol McNeil, Dr Gabriel Colloran and to Nolene Blackwell. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to be discussing that bombshell interview from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Now, turning to matters of royalty and a right royal fallout following Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle's bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey. And here to discuss is journalist Sinead Ryan and Goss.ie CEO and founder Alexandra Ryan. You're both very welcome to the programme. Look, sure. Sinead, I know there'll be some people watching this evening going, seriously, are we really talking about this? Every news outlet all day long. Absolutely. My WhatsApp. <laughs> I don't <has> dusk. <laughs> going on. It's, only, it's the only thing yeah. people are talking about as far as I can see. 
For you, it's nearly a two-hour interview. Mm. I think there's no suggestion that Oprah was having to coax it out of them oh, not in any way. They were ready to, to spill, weren't they? They were. They were probably ready before now and it just all had to be lined up and set up in the way celebrities do, kind of the lighting and the makeup and the day and under my terms and all that kind of thing. So, For you, the well standard done to revelations Oprah. are what? Uh, key revelations. Well, I look, I mean, uh, first and foremost, we have to take Megan's bona fides that she felt um, un overwhelmed, displaced, bullied. Um, she certainly was treated disgracefully by some sections of uh, the press and online uh, social media which it was, isn't, uh, but in her case, it definitely had racist undertones for, for a very, very long time. And I, I think if she was feeling uh, completely um, overwhelmed by that, we, we have to feel terribly sorry for anybody who would be in that position on today of all days, you know. In um, fact, she went as far as to say she had suicidal thoughts at one stage. She oh, had to voice yeah. those to Harry, didn't she? Awful. And I mean, that no nobody, no person should be ever felt, feel that they have been put in that position and can't find a way out. So from her her perspective, you would have to feel for her with that. So that was that was a large takeaway from from that uh, interview. Um, in terms of the rest of it, there's an awful lot of fact checking that has had to go on today to verify some of the stuff that that, that Megan was saying. Not so much Harry, um, and a lot of it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, this this loose linking that was put now could be editing, but it definitely came across in the interview. And this was a packaged piece, you know, that uh, Archie the baby didn't get security because he wasn't a HRH, and therefore he didn't get a HRH because of his race. Now, that is absolute bunkum. I mean, that, that has been shown as such. Harry's a second son and the rules are different for a second son as opposed to one who is going to ascend to the throne. That's been the same since 1917. It hasn't changed. It's not going to change for them. They didn't deny him a sort of the title of prince sort of out of some sort of spite towards Definitely the couple. Not. No, Definitely not. Definitely not. And, and if Meghan didn't know that and doesn't know that four years in, well then Harry has a big job of work to do because that's something he's known all of his life. Yeah. Uh, and he's known it from his cousins uh, and he knows it from, you know, other family members that it just, like, it's nothing to do with Meghan. What it's nothing to do with Archie. About the sort of allegations around this question over the colour of Archie um, and the suggestion today, I think early in the day, that perhaps it was Prince Philip who had made this remark. Um, yeah, but well, Oprah has since clarified. She has. No, it wasn't anything to do with Prince Philip. And now the speculation yeah. is, you know... Who is it? Well, I mean, that, that becomes the, the right story then, doesn't it? And, and the problem is that you can't plonk a massive big allegation out there and not back it up. Uh, and in the interview, Harry dropped away from it completely. She, Megan was saying that while she was on her own at the first half of the interview, and then he, he just shut that down straight away. Um, it, it seems to be that there was a senior member of the royal family, and there's only six of them. <laughs> there's only six of them. And if it wasn't the Queen and it wasn't the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, that leaves very few people. Uh, so is, is there clarity required over that? Possibly. Could it have happened? Listen, they heard it. We have to assume it did. Is it right? No, of course it isn't. I just want to go uh, to Alexandra Ryan, who I said is there on Skype. And uh, as Sinead mentioned, look, she did get a very, very difficult time on social media. I don't think anybody can deny that. I'm wondering what social media's reaction is this evening um, as that interview airs. Yeah, there's a real mix, actually. And it is um, airing in the UK and Ireland in tandem at the moment. So it's interesting watching what people are saying in the UK and what people are saying in Ireland.
But pretty much overwhelmingly, people do seem to be on Megan's side. People are disgusted with how she was treated, especially, like you said there, we appear to have just lost that connection with Alexandra. Has there been, do you think, a different reaction in the United Kingdom to the rest of the world? Uh, I think so. And a lot of Britons, there was a poll uh, held, you know, uh, about whether they felt they'd been unfairly treated or not. Overwhelmingly, Britons did not believe that they'd been unfairly treated and thought they were a little bit spoiled, actually. Um, and I think the difference is because Britain not only is paying for the monarchy, so it probably gets a louder voice than most people as taxpayers, but they deeply understand how the monarchy works and what its purpose is and what it's supposed to do. I would suggest that Americans, including Meghan, felt that the term royalty and celebrity were interchangeable. She saw herself, I believe, as going from kind of a C-list actress to an A-list celebrity. And, it's, she, and she says this in the interview. She said it was entirely different. I know celebrities. I've been in celebrity. This is totally different. And it is totally. There's no show. There's no show in the royal family. I wonder, Alexander, then, is it fair to say that she was naive or, you know, is it her own fault in some ways that she joined this institution without having a greater understanding of what the institution was and that the institution wouldn't change for her? I absolutely have no doubt in my mind that she was not naive. I mean, one of the big things we're seeing online tonight is the part where she said that she never had Googled Harry before she met him. I mean, most people online are calling that out tonight. I mean, that's pretty much impossible. Even if you were to go on a blind date with anybody, you would try to find out who they are. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with the interview is that there's a lot of things that were said. Like Sinead mentioned, there's a few fact checks today that aren't really adding up and that's causing problems because you want to believe them. It's a harrowing story. They've clearly gone through a tough time, but it's very tough when Megan is saying things like, I never looked him up. I never read the newspapers. But but then later in the interview, she refers to headlines that are in the newspapers. She also talks a good bit about the media and how the palace work with them in a, what they called an invisible contract. And Megan seems quite shocked at this. And she says she doesn't understand tabloid culture. But many um, senior journalists in the UK, including Piers Morgan, Katie Hind, have come out since and said, you know, Megan's publicist basically were at them for so long to meet her. And when they did, all their bills were paid for champagne, for food. So this is a game Megan knows well. So it's not that I think people don't believe her whole story, but it's hard to really take everything word for word when there's parts of her story that doesn't add up. And then when you're talking about racism, you know, the suggestion that they weren't looking to give Archie security, as Sinead rightly said, that's not something that's specific to them. But when you watch that Oprah interview, especially as an American, you definitely would think that this has been done on purpose. And, you know, a lot of people are saying online that she's trying to take down the monarchy. And at the same time, there are other people on there being like, leave her alone. This is Diana all over again. So it's it's very 50-50 online, but I think for me, okay. the most powerful point of it was Prince Harry. Yeah, you know, I just him want to... coming out saying he felt trapped, you know? I want to put that point back to Sinead. Ultimately, the damage, I think, has been done. Where do they go from here? And where does the royal family go from here, the monarchy go from here? Well, the royal family have a tradition of never complain, never explain. And I don't know if they're going to issue a statement on any of these things. The problem is you go down a rabbit hole then because you end up refuting everything point by point by point and then it becomes a tag team. And they don't have the same voice that Meghan and Harry now have. Uh, so I don't know what's going to, what 
Buckingham Palace, they haven't issued anything at the time when I came out this evening. They haven't issued a statement and they may not do anything about it. They may just let it fizzle out. Uh, in terms of what happens next, well, I mean, look, there's a couple of options. Option one, Harry and Meghan stay happy ever after and good luck to them. And they raise their chickens and I suggest they call themselves Mr. and Mrs. Mountbatten-Windsor for the rest of their days. Mm. Option two is Meghan gets tired of Harry. <laughs> and and option three is then the whole thing. They they just come, come down the hammers on them. So look, let's it's hope not it's option one for everybody let's involved. Let's hope so. Uh, Sinead Ryan and Alexandra Ryan, thank you so much for your time this evening. If you have been affected by any of the issues we've been discussing here tonight, uh, support is available 24-7 on the Samaritans uh, helpline. That's all we have time for. And um, my thanks to all of my guests. The next news bulletin on Virgin Media will be on Ireland AM tomorrow morning at 7am. I'll be back tomorrow night at 10. But until then, stay safe. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiancé. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com